Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, my wife and I have uh, been foster parents for about ten years, and uh, there are many things that go into becoming foster parents, um, a lot of background checks, uh, but a lot of training that has to go involved. And, and, and in the initial training and in various different continuing education trainings uh, that we've had to do since that time, um, one topic has always kind of interested me, and it's when we talk about the, the nature and, and the, the, the reason why many children are in foster care uh, is because of difficult situations, obviously, that are coming out in their home lives. And some of the effect of that in certain cases can lead to certain behaviors that if you don't understand where children are coming from, won't totally make sense. Uh, one of those behaviors is stealing food or hoarding food. Children will steal food when they don't necessarily need it. They'll, they'll hoard up what we'll find in their room, in their bedroom, or, or, or in their closet, just a pile, a stockpile of food. And you wonder, why would this be happening? You're in a home now where you have plenty of food. You will never lack. There will always be food provided for your needs. And it's really interesting. It's, as you think about the, what the training helps you to do is to understand that where these children are coming from, they may have learned to steal or hoard food as a way to survive. And so, Part of what you have to think through as a foster parent, if you're in these sorts of situations, is to think through, how do we not only, of course, teach children that stealing food is wrong, but then go beyond that to try to really recognize and understand the reason why they're doing it in the way that we teach that, to recognize that it's the situations that they've come from that they have learned not to trust that their needs will be provided for, so that as you're teaching them that something is wrong, you're also teaching them what is right. You're teaching them about what they can trust so that they know that their needs will be met. Now, what's so interesting in this story that Jesus, I think, is doing something very much along those lines. He's meeting particular needs, especially needs that relate to hunger, and in doing so, he's demonstrating to us through this miracle that he will meet our needs. He demonstrates that He loves us, that He shows compassion for our needs. And so it isn't a matter just so much of saying, no, stop doing all of these things that when we sin, we are necessarily assuming that nothing good will happen. Our needs will not be met unless we do something wrong to seize the necessities that we need. And Jesus is showing us here 
that we don't have to take matters into our own hands because Jesus has compassion for our needs. That's the big idea today, that Jesus has compassion for our needs. Jesus has compassion for our needs. Now, as we look at this passage today, we're going to see three parts. First of all, the needs of Jesus, the needs of Jesus. We're going to start there, and that's perhaps one of the most surprising parts about how this story is told. Second, the needs of the crowd, and they have multiple needs. And then third, the needs of the disciples. The needs of Jesus, the needs of the crowd, and third, the needs of the disciples. So we'll start with the needs of Jesus. And and Matthew tells this story about the feeding of 5,000. You could tell it a number of ways, but he really starts with an emphasis on the needs of Jesus. Look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, What's that a reference to? What has Jesus heard? If you remember the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the immediately preceding passage at the beginning of Matthew chapter 14, that was the passage about the execution, the wrongful murder of John the Baptist. And at the very end of the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago in verse 12, chapter 14, verse 12, we read that John's disciples, his disciples, John's disciples came and took the body of John and buried it and they went and told Jesus. That's the news that Jesus has heard. Now, John the Baptist uh, was someone who was very important to Jesus. And what Jesus does in response to this news is that we read that he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now, why does Jesus withdraw in response to this news? Well, part of the answer is that if we look at the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus regularly withdraws when there is danger that would affect his life before it comes time for him to go to the cross. The day will eventually come when Jesus will have to set aside all defenses and he will have to hand himself over to those who will falsely accuse him, to those who will um, um, condemn him falsely, to those who will beat him and mock him and spit upon him and nail him to a cross and kill him. But until that time, throughout Jesus' life, you see him withdrawing to escape danger before the time comes. In fact, it's in Matthew chapter 2 where this word for withdraw shows up most often. The wise men withdraw so they don't have to go and tell Herod where Jesus is located. Mary and Joseph withdraw by going down to Egypt to avoid the danger coming when Herod Herod the Great puts to death uh, every child three and under. Then Mary and Joseph withdraw to go to Nazareth, uh, Nazareth because one of Herod's sons, Archelaus, is now reigning. So four times we read about withdrawals in Matthew chapter 2 to escape danger. But we also see Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew when, when, Herod was, or when Herod imprisoned John the Baptist. Jesus withdrew then, and now again Jesus withdraws. Again, all of this is because Jesus will not subject himself to danger before the time comes where he must give himself over to go to the cross. Until that fullness of time, until the rest of his ministry is completed, Jesus must withdraw. And, and frankly, this is actually a part of Jesus' suffering as he's always on the run. When he doesn't have a place to lay his head, he cannot call anywhere home fully because Jesus has come for a particular mission, which eventually will culminate in the cross. But another reason Jesus withdraws is directly tied to this news that John the Baptist has died. Again, Jesus held John in the highest honor. We know that from the beginning when John the Baptist 
baptized Jesus. Jesus insisted upon John the Baptist baptizing him. We know that also in Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus talked about John the Baptist as the greatest of those born among women. John the Baptist has been a long-time relative of Jesus. Again, their mothers were relatives, Mary and Elizabeth. And John the Baptist has been a partner in ministry from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Elsewhere, we know that when Jesus was at the grave of another friend, Lazarus, in John 11, verse 35, we read that Jesus wept, even though he knew that he would shortly raise Lazarus from the dead. We see Jesus withdrawing then here, and we have to infer from this that Jesus is in part grieving. He withdraws. We don't even read to hide. He withdraws to go to a desolate place by himself, but not so hidden that people don't know where he is. We'll read about that in a moment. He goes to a desolate place because he's grieving, because he is mourning the loss of his friend. And when Jesus does this, he's setting an example of behavior. He's setting an example for life, that when we are faced with grieving and mourning, we understand that to do so is good and right in the face of death. You see, sometimes well-meaning people say that death is just a natural part of life. I guess they're trying to make some meaning when people go to their death. But the Bible tells a very different story. The Bible insists that death is not a natural part of life. It was not a part of God's original design for creation. That death entered the world only through sin, so that death is the horrifying byproduct of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Jesus, before He was born as the eternal Son of God, as one of the three persons of the one God, the triune God, the Son of God eternally knew that death was a horrifying consequence of sin. But it's so interesting that only now when Jesus takes upon Himself a human nature does He experience the horrors and the suffering of grief from a human perspective. Jesus takes upon a human nature in part to taste of our suffering, to taste the grief of human loss through death. And in some divine mystery, Jesus' experiential knowledge of grief at death becomes woven into His motivation to stamp out death as He puts all of His enemies under His feet. And as Paul says, that death will be the last enemy for Him to put under His feet in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 25 through 26, before the end of the world will come. And here we see a part of this picture, that when Jesus hears of the death of John the Baptist, He withdraws to a desolate place by Himself to take care of His own needs, to grieve, to mourn the loss of His friends. This is not selfish. It is not sinful to grieve and to mourn. Grieving and mourning is a natural response to something that is thoroughly unnatural, death. Now, I think when we think of Jesus in this position, it's somewhat hard to get our minds around how an infinite, eternal, unchangeable God, the Son of God, the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, uh, that before He took on a human nature, uh, the Bible says that He cannot suffer. Uh, if you read the Scriptures, you understand that God cannot suffer. Uh, the theologians call this God's impassibility. He is incapable of suffering. But yet when Jesus came into this world, He suffered. He grieved. In fact, He took upon a human nature in part so that He could physically suffer at the cross and so that He could suffer in various ways throughout His life. Uh, 
including being sent off into exile, including grieving at the loss of his friends and loved ones. And it's somewhat difficult for us to get our minds, how can God suffer? Certainly at the cross and even in this particular instance right now. And I think maybe one of the ways to understand what it meant for Jesus to take upon a human nature is to think about the kinds of limitations that we place upon ourselves whenever we play a game. If you ever play a game, you take upon yourself unique limitations because of the rules of the game. The rules of the game always put limitations that you're not bound by as a human being, but you are because you are entering into that game. Uh, so, for example, think about the game of football. You know, when you're thinking about football players, offensive linemen, these are some of the most, uh, especially when you get to the collegiate or to the, the, the uh, NFL level, you're thinking about some of the most talented, gifted athletes in the world. And here they are, and they certainly can move anywhere they want to go. They're very gifted athletically. But you think about an offensive line, and they put upon themselves the limitations that they're not going to move until the ball is snapped. That's one of the rules. Or you think about a wide receiver streaking down the field. Now, again, one of the fastest people on the planet if you're at the highest levels of football. But even though those people as human beings can run wherever they might want, they stay within the field of play. They, stay, they don't go out of bounds. They take upon themselves unique limitations in order to enter into that game. Now, don't press this analogy too far. Every time we talk about the mysteries of God as three persons in one, every time we think about the mystery of the Son of God taking upon Himself a human nature, all of our best analogies break down at some point. But the reason for thinking about taking upon the limitations of playing a game is that when you think about watching advanced players play a particular game, you watch them and you marvel at the way that they execute those rules of the game. And if you're in that game, you can learn from it. How do younger football players learn how to play football? They watch film of older, more experienced, more talented, more athletic players playing the game. If we watch Jesus in this situation, He is teaching us how to play the game. Of course, that's too small of a thing. It's not that Jesus was just dabbling or playing at being a human being. No, He took upon Himself a true human nature, but He is teaching us what it means to take upon the uniqueness, the frailty, the suffering of being a human being in the face of grief. Jesus here grieves and mourns, and in doing so, He models the goodness and the rightness of grief in the face of death. And in fact, the way that Matthew is writing this whole story that's a very important point as we're going to see. It begins with Jesus caring for His own needs. And this is why this point is important. Because what happens very quickly is that the scene changes, where it's not Jesus alone ministering to His own needs, but when the crowd comes to Him, as we're going to see in the next section, we see that instantly Jesus drops His care for His own needs in order to care for the needs of others. Jesus, as He speaks of elsewhere, came not to be served, He came to serve. So that when other needs come into His field of vision, when He sees other needs, He responds with compassion. The same compassion that we were reading about and praying about in our confession of sin and assurance of pardon earlier on in this worship service. 
But let's get to the second section where we see how Jesus' needs are now pit against another set of needs, the needs of the crowd. This is the second section, the needs of the crowd, and these start almost immediately. Our Lord has almost no time to deal with His own needs. Because in the second half of verse 13, we read, but when the crowds heard it, they followed Him on foot from the towns. Jesus took a respite from ministry, but this respite did not last long. The crowds went and sought Him out, following Him on foot. Then in verse 14 we read, When He went ashore, He saw a great crowd, and He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, it's very important, I think, that Jesus saw the crowd. Uh, Whenever we read about someone seeing someone or something in Scripture, it's not just telling us about something that their eyes are set upon. Whenever we see this, we're often told this detail because it's setting up the reaction. This is another important part of being a human being, that we are people who are bound in time, and we are people who react then to what happens in time. Before, when Jesus was alone, He could care for His own needs, but now that the crowd comes following after Him, He looks up and sees this crowd, and the real question is, how will Jesus respond in this moment? Think about your own life. When you're overwhelmed with your own needs, when you're overwhelmed with your grief maybe, and people, maybe a lot of people come to you and they present to you their needs, how are we tempted to respond in that moment? Are we joyful? Oh, wonderful other needs. This is great. We can help with these. It's not my response. Maybe we're tempted to feel overwhelmed. I can't even care for myself. How am I supposed to deal with all these other people? Maybe in response to feeling overwhelmed, we feel angry. How dare you come and present this to me? Don't you know what I am going through here? Maybe sometimes it might give us some energy. All right, let's do this. But I think more often, we don't feel good about this. What then is Jesus' response? Well, Jesus' response is that when He saw this great crowd, He had compassion on them and healed their sick. The word for compassion is a word that really refers to the the lower viscera, the lower organs, the, the bowels, the gut. We might talk about the heart as the seat of our emotion, but in the New Testament, when you read about it's the seat of the emotions, it's the bowels, the gut. Jesus' gut reaction toward these people was not one of anger. It was one of pity. He had compassion on them. And so we ask, well, what is Jesus going to do when He's faced with continuing to minister to His own needs or ministering to the needs of this crowd? Jesus lays aside His own needs in dealing with His grief to relieve the suffering and the sickness of this crowd. Now, as we're going to see, the suffering and sickness of this crowd is the first presenting problem. It's the first set of needs that Jesus is going to deal with, but it's not the last need that this crowd is going to have. Because we read in verse 15 that after Jesus had spent an entire day in ministry, verse 15 actually brings out the length of Jesus' day twice. Now, when it was evening... The disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Jesus hadn't just sort of seen them, maybe waved his hands, and they were all healed. You get the idea that Jesus is going from person to person, laying his hands on them, praying over these people, healing them one by one, maybe getting to know their story about how they have suffered. Jesus spends a lengthy day of ministry with this crowd, ministering to their acute needs. 
You know, they've been healthy. They have this acute problem where they're not feeling very well. They're sick in one way or another. And Jesus then heals those issues. After dealing with their acute needs, now another need arises. Not an acute need, but a chronic need. The need of hunger. Not an aberration from health, sickness, but a normal, natural bodily function, again, one of those limitations of what it means to be human beings, namely that in regular intervals, we need to eat something. And Jesus' disciples, when it was evening, come to Jesus and say, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away into the villages and buy f- to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, if you think about it, if the crowds are hungry, probably the disciples are hungry. That's probably what's motivating this. Jesus, why don't, we, why don't we just take care of these people and let them go eat? Why? Because I'm hungry. I'm dying here. I want to go eat. Let's get rid of these people so we can care for our own needs. But then, of course, think of their master. He's grieving. He has been the one spending this day in ministry. Maybe in part they're thinking about their master as well. And so they propose this idea, and frankly, their idea is garbage. Their idea is to go into these villages and to go find food. Now, understand the way that this works. If you've never lived in one of these um, societies that are built in villages, when I went to Africa a couple of years ago, um, I really got to understand what village life is like. Because there is a big city, for example, we were in Kenya, and Nairobi is a very large city. But if you get out of Nairobi and you go into the villages, what you do is you have uh, really essentially like a, a strip mall of small, like, like five little shops of small basic necessities, and that's kind of the marketplace. And people huddle around that, and they sell the things that they brought straight from the field in to sell, and to, for people to go straight from the farm to their table to eat, to meet their daily needs. And then you go a couple miles down the road, and you have have exactly the same thing. And if you drive through the country, you see this again and again and again as you go through the villages. In these villages, understand, they don't have giant refrigerator cases filled with food to pull out of their stores. They don't have boxed, preserved foods like we might in our grocery stores. At the end of the day, in these tiny little villages that don't have but a few hundred people at each spot, Where's the food going to be? If everyone has already picked over what they were going to eat for the day, how are thousands of people going to descend upon these villages and get enough to eat? Their plan is worthless. They overestimate the strength of their own plan, and they're just trying to solve the problem. Let's get them out of here. But they also underestimated Jesus' own power. It's just not possible for the people to have their needs met, for the crowd to have their needs met in this way. So the real question is, after Jesus has served so long, while he's in the midst of his own grief, after he's healed so many of their acute issues, what is Jesus going to do to meet this need? And there's a real question here because previously Jesus hasn't been feeding the people. He's been doing all of this spiritual work. He's been preaching. He's been teaching. Even the miracles he performed have largely been really big things, like healing the sick, like casting out demons, uh, uh, like um, even raising the dead. Jesus has been doing big kinds of things, but but now the question is, what are we going to feed these people? But Jesus, in addition to ministering the Word of God, in addition to healing the acute sicknesses of these people, Jesus makes it very clear that he intends also to wait tables. Once again, Jesus is giving us an example. 
Jesus values both word ministry and bodily ministry. Both of these are important, and both of these are spiritual. And Jesus sets an example here that is carried throughout the rest of the New Testament. In Acts chapter 6, an issue comes up again that deals with food. The Hellenistic widows are being left out of the daily distribution of food in favor of the the Hebrew widows are getting what they need, but not the Hellenistic widows. And so there becomes a real question. Apostles, what are you going to do about this great need of food? And again, this is Peter and the same people who were with these disciples watching Jesus minister in this way. It's interesting what they do. They don't miraculously multiply food in that moment. What they do are appoint a set of officers, officers that to this day we call deacons, who continue on this ministry. They say it's not right for us to uh, relieve or to give up the preaching of the Word of God and our devotion to prayer in order to wait tables, but we need someone to do this work. Our master modeled this work. We need to carry on this work of feeding people, and so they appointed the first deacons to continue this work. And to this day, when our deacons feed people. We have a food pantry downstairs. People come. When they need food, they can get food from our food pantry. When they do this work of caring for the bodily needs of people, they are continuing this work that Jesus started off here. Of course, it didn't start here. God has been feeding His people throughout history, especially at major points like when God feeds people with manna in the wilderness, His people with manna in the wilderness. But every meal we have comes from the generosity of God. Jesus is showing us the importance of meeting these people's bodily needs. Jesus meets the acute sickness needs of the crowds, the chronic hunger needs of the crowds. But of course, we haven't actually seen how Jesus is going to deal with this. Because in verse 16, Jesus flips the tables a little bit. The disciples have brought in this problem, but Jesus says, they, the crowd, need not go away. You give them something to eat. It's an emphatic statement. You meet their needs. It's not my intention for the needs of this crowd to be filled by others. I want you to meet them. And this leads to our third section, because if you think about it, when Jesus assigns his disciples to feeding these people, now the disciples have a need. How are they going to do what Jesus is telling them to do? So now we come to the third section, the needs of the disciples in verses 17 through 21. We read, they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. This is the first objection. Jesus, we don't have enough food for this. If you thought our plan was bad by sending them into the villages where there wouldn't be enough food at this time of day, your plan is far worse, Jesus. What are we going to do with five loaves and two fish? But in verse 18, Jesus says, bring them, bring the food here to me. And in verse 19, we read, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish... He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. Now, what's important about this is that when we read these words, taking, blessing, broke, and gave, these are words that show up in all of the stories of the administration of the Lord's Supper, especially later on in Matthew chapter 26, verse 26. Uh, We are having words that are deliberately linked to the Lord's Supper. Now, it's not that this is the first instance of the Lord's Supper. This is a meal of bread and fish, and the Lord's Supper is a meal of bread and wine. It is rather that both this meal and the Lord's Supper are two meals that both point forward to another meal. Namely, this is a foretaste of 
the banquet that the Old Testament envisioned the Messiah preparing for His people. Like, for example, in Isaiah 25, on this mountain, God will give to His people a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. What did the Messiah come to do? To inaugurate that great feast for God's people. And so what we are told here is that when Jesus feeds these peoples, He doesn't just kind of give them a little bit of food to eat. He absolutely fills them up. He perfectly satisfies them. In verse 20, we read, they all ate and were satisfied. That word satisfied is something more like gorged or they were stuffed. It's a word that's uh, literally connected to the word for grass. It's idea of filling a, or fattening up uh, cattle by filling them, feeding them with a whole bunch of grass. They were just stuffed that day from the meal that they ate, like, like cattle being fattened for the slaughter. They all ate and were satisfied. And then we read that they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. It isn't that people stopped short. They ate everything they wanted, and they couldn't even finish everything that was there. There was so much left over that 12 baskets were filled. Now, in the symbolism of the Gospel of Matthew, again, the 12 disciples represent a symbolic continuity with the Old Testament's 12 tribes of Israel. Here we have 12 baskets filled up. What most theologians understand this to mean is that Jesus is, again, this messianic feast that He's bringing. This will fully satisfy the 12 tribes of Israel. This will be a complete satisfying feast for God's people. And we read that this was a huge number of people who were there even that day. The miracle was extraordinary. Jesus fed 5,000 men besides whatever number of women and children who are there. Jesus is not only meeting spiritual needs, He is also meeting bodily needs. But as He meets these bodily needs, notice then that He's also meeting spiritual needs for the disciples. The disciples were assigned this task of feeding, but then Jesus miraculously accomplished this work for them. A former pastor of mine would often point to this passage and, and, and say that this is the model that we are given in the New Testament for ministry. God calls us to do a lot of stuff. You feed these people. You shepherd these people. But that never means that we do it in our own strength, according to our own wisdom. Jesus says, you take care of these people. But then he promises that he will be the one to care for them. So, for example, among the officers of the church, he calls elders to shepherd his people. But, of course, Jesus remains the good shepherd. He appoints deacons in his church to meet bodily needs in the church, feeding people, caring for their needs, and various aspects of mercy ministry. But Jesus Christ is called the chief deacon. The word for deacon is also translated as minister or servant. It's a title that is directly applied to Jesus. Jesus possesses all the titles of all the other offices of the church in himself because Jesus has compassion for the needs of his people in every aspect, every facet of their needs that we have. Jesus has compassion for our needs. Again, that's our big idea. Our application then is this. Trust Jesus to meet your needs. Trust Jesus to meet your needs. Now, where this starts is trust Jesus to give you your daily bread. In the United States, we don't give much thought to where our food comes from. It simply appears for us in the grocery store or in restaurants. It 
might as well have been miraculously produced by Jesus in the back room. We don't know where it comes. It just shows up. It's just, it's essentially like a miracle for us. We totally do not understand. We're disconnected from the agricultural processes, except for the few of us out here who are farmers. And I'm not including me in that us. Um, we live in such an abundance of food that we don't know where it comes from and we don't really question it. Unless, of course, like in tragic situations like foster care that I mentioned earlier, a situation arises where food is not a given and where people are desperate to steal it or hoard it to make sure that they have enough. But this passage is reminding us that Jesus takes care of our needs. So often when we go to try to meet our various needs, whether it's for hunger or other needs, we think that we have to do everything for ourselves, and we are willing even to transgress boundaries that God has appointed in order to meet our needs. I need this, we rationalize to ourselves. And yet Jesus doesn't just say, stop it. He doesn't just say, no. He says, what you need to understand more than anything else is that I am the one who will meet your needs far more abundantly than you could think or imagine. You think that you are the best person to meet your own needs. The reality is that I have come to meet every need that you have and needs that you are not even aware that you have. Every need that we have, including food, Jesus has always been meeting. You have never eaten a meal that has come outside the bounty and the kindness of Christ Again, part of the reason that Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven and says a blessing is to set an example for us to remind us that our earthly needs are not everything we need. We need to lift our eyes to heaven to notice that these gifts come from our Father who is in heaven as he feeds us. And yet we're so often anxious about these needs. We plot out our pitiful plans, trying to do the equivalent of feeding thousands by villages that surround us. A large reason behind the anxiety that we suffer so often is that we're always trying to plot and scheme. Our best laid plans, though, when we actually stop and think of them, are garbage. They're worthless. I can't really feed these thousands of people in this way in the surrounding villages. I can't meet my needs in the ways that I'm scheming to meet those needs right now. But yet Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. And what Jesus is showing us here is that every need is an opportunity to do what the disciples eventually were made to do by Jesus, to bring those needs to Jesus. Every need is an opportunity to see our Lord provide from His abundance, not necessarily miraculously. Very often Jesus uses the normal, common methods in the way that the world has worked. God still sends rain to raise up crops from the ground, and that is what comes to us through our grocery stores and through our restaurants. The question then is, what need are you scheming to meet? And what need should you bring to Jesus? But the second part of this application is that we must trust Jesus to meet our greatest needs, the needs of our, not only our body, but our souls. What we eat is not our greatest problem. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you, but we must seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Our greatest need, our greatest problem is where we will spend eternity. If you have not repented from your sin this morning, if you have not turned to Jesus looking to Him in faith, and if you were to die before looking to Jesus for your salvation, the Scriptures declare that you would spend the rest of eternity in hell, where not only your body, but your body and your soul would be cast in torment, separated from the love and 
kindness and compassion of God forever. Your greatest need then is a Savior who will take away your sin and who will give you a righteousness that will qualify you not because of anything you have done, but on the basis of what He has done to stand before the presence of God's joy with great joy. Have then you turned to Jesus for your salvation. Do so today. But also as you think about your life, what spiritual needs are you scheming? We have so many ways that we maybe seek to put a particular sin to death and we scheme the plans that we're going to do that or to grow in an area of our character. We make these best laid out pitiful plans that we think think will accomplish these needs for us. Well, the same Jesus who meets your bodily needs on a daily basis is the one who will meet your spiritual needs. Every sin in your life is an opportunity to turn to Jesus. You need His forgiveness, but you also need His grace to help you to grow. What need do you have to grow in righteousness? That's an opportunity to come to Jesus and ask Him for help. What need should you be bringing to Jesus? Whether it is a spiritual need, a great defect and flaw in your character and conduct, or in the bodily needs of meeting your daily bread. Whatever you need, this morning is an opportunity to turn to Jesus and to see Him provide your needs. Maybe with a miracle, but probably not. Jesus will ordinarily meet your needs in, in a, very, a variety of ordinary ways, but make no mistake. Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights who is in heaven, who loves you, who sent His Son because He has compassion for our needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us your great compassion in meeting our needs. We pray that you would love us, that you would protect us, that you would care for us, and we pray that in all of this, we would learn to trust Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.